Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Well, (laughs) let's get ready. One-two pitch on the way. Driven to right field, out there towards the corner. That is a fair ball home run! A three-run homer by Eddie Rosario. He just electrified this crowd, and the Braves have a 4-1 lead. One ball and no strikes. Pitch on the way. There's a shot to Dansby. He slides to it. He's got it. Throws over. There is a new champion of the National League, and it is the Atlanta Braves. They have won the 2021. Not since 1999, the Atlanta Braves, yes, will get to play for a World Series title. We'll preview the series against the Houston Astros when WABE's Emil Moffitt joins me to talk more about the Braves in the World Series. Plus, also this hour, a major announcement from J.P. Morgan Chase supporting minority-owned businesses here in the Atlanta area and why Atlanta has become a destination for blacks relocating from Boston. Atlanta is almost like we, we feel like we don't have to ask to do. You, you feel empowered. It's our town. I never felt, even though I was there for 20 years, I never felt like Boston was my town at all. And I love Boston. From the GBH News Center in Boston, senior investigative reporter Philip Martin, who came to Atlanta to conduct his reporting, well, he joins me and we'll also have the feature. Those conversations coming up in just a moment, but we'll begin here. This is the last week to vote early in those municipal elections, but reports so far indicate turnout, mm, it's been slow. Early voting data reveals only about 40,000 people have cast ballots in DeKalb, Fulton, and Cobb counties so far, and these counties have hundreds of thousands of eligible voters. In-person and absentee voting is, well, trickling. Fulton County has received just over 700 mail-in ballots. Its eight drop boxes have collected about 400 envelopes. Now, those elections are mostly nonpartisan, which can make for harder choices as the crutch of party affiliation falls away. A poll released last week by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution shows more than 40 percent of voters are still undecided in terms of the mayoral election, meaning they have no clue who they're going to vote for. But they will at some point, we think. Atlanta voters also have to pick city council and school board representatives. Election day is November 2nd. In other news, federal officials are reporting an increase in firearm seizures at Atlanta's International Airport. Once again, it's part of a record year for the number of guns detected at airport security checkpoints. The Transportation Security Administration says it seized 391 firearms at Hartsfield-Jackson Airport in the first nine months of this year. That's up 323 in all of 2019. Across the nation, the TSA says it had stopped almost 5,000 airline passengers from carrying firearms onto their flights by October 3rd of this year. That's already more than the previous record of 4,400 firearms caught at checkpoints in 2019. Coming up next, that major announcement about helping minority-owned small businesses here in Atlanta. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. If you subscribe to the notion that America's small businesses are rebounding, then yes, you say that glass is half full. But in a recent piece from Fortune.com, reports that optimism, that optimism dips among black-owned businesses. In citing a reimagined Main Street survey, 67% of black-owned businesses believed it would be at least another six months before their revenue would return to pre-pandemic levels. That's versus 59% for their white counterparts. 
Well, today, J.P. Morgan Chase is announcing that it's committing $3.2 million to support minority-owned small businesses right here in the Atlanta area. And it's through their Entrepreneurs of Color Fund program and an investment in what they call technical assistance for small business owners. We're going to find out more as I'm joined by Rashida Winfrey, Minority Small Business Consultant with J.P. Morgan Chase, and Dale Rural, Executive Director with the Local Initiative Support Corporation, better known as LISC. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Let's begin here. And Rashid, I'll let you take it first. When you hear about the optimism dips among minority-owned, particularly Black-owned businesses in terms of when their businesses might return to those pre-pandemic levels, it's not a surprise for you. Um, not at all. So what we know um, historically, and especially what we've seen you know, during the pandemic, our minority businesses have been hit at greater rates than um, you know mainstream businesses. So you're talking about a community of um, of, of small business owners who already um, kind of saw their aspirations for business in some some ways out of reach. And so COVID has only exacerbated that. So no, absolutely, that's not surprising at all to me. Dale, what about you? I agree. Our businesses of color have been impacted the most by COVID. And as they're looking to pivot, they need the cash to be able to invest in their dollars. And a recent study showed that in Atlanta, cash balances reduced by 21% during COVID. 21%? And Atlanta businesses, those cash balances were reduced more than any other major city in the country. So I'm not surprised that Businesses of color are struggling and maybe having a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, before we get to this latest announcement from you all, let's go back because I believe it was in uh, maybe about a year ago um, this month where J.P. Morgan Chase had talked about committing, I think it was $30 billion toward a what they call the to advance racial equity. For our listeners who may not be so familiar with that, um, what it, at the core of that is it just beyond giving money So, so yes, so about a year ago, we did make a, a very bold, significant um, commitment. Um, the EOCF fund, um, which you know we'll discuss more about, is one piece of that. Um, in addition, that commitment touches um, you know goals around around housing. Um, definitely, the small business piece is you know the work that I do um, every day. Um, we're also very in this market specifically, we're making investments into minority um, deposit institutions and other CDFIs. Um, one great example is a recent investment into Citizens Trust Bank, right, mm -hmm. um, which then allows them to strengthen, um, you know, a, as an entity to remain the historic institution that they have been for our city and to also get more money um, into the community. There are definitely goals around increased spend. Um, we're um, committed to $750 million, um, in spend with um, Black, Latinx, and um, Hispanic vendors um, across, across, the, um, across our footprint. Um, so yes, this is part of it. It was a very bold announcement and, and, and a lot more to come. Dale, let me get your thoughts on this because for folks who may not be familiar with the Local Initiative Support Corporation, which we call as LISC, define that for them. LISC is a nonprofit community development financial institution, and we're here to finance businesses and projects that may not get support from conventional lenders and financiers. And we are an intermediary, so we receive dollars from corporations and banks and foundations who support community development. We work to direct those dollars and direct them with technical assistance to help make sure we get impact. Dale, when you say support those businesses that may not traditionally get that support, is that due to barriers, maybe because they haven't been in business long enough? Could it be credit criteria? What have you? Exactly. Um, credit, um, years of experience, yeah, somebody to back you up. Um, most lenders want to have a guarantee behind your, your loan. A lot of folks don't have somebody to call with a big bank account. To I know I up. don't. Do you? Well, you probably do, but I don't. <laughs> no, I don't you and Rashida do. I, I don't have anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And sometimes you have a, an idea, but it hasn't been really crystallized into a sharp plan that could be compelling to a lender. You need some help to say, how are you going to move that idea to somebody who's actually going to purchase that service? Prior to 2020, when we, and we all know with the pandemic and also our politics and, and also the calls for social and racial justice, um, was this, this also part of why J.P. Morgan Chase decided to create just this whole, as you call it, this, this footprint into this area? Is that, is that one of the reasons? So, um, so Dale mentioned the decreased Im- imbalances. I had, um, and I, I truly do call it an opportunity because it was life-changing for me, right? I had an opportunity to work closely or work with our economic development agency in helping to get funding out during COVID um, as part of the CARES Act funding. And I got to talk to small businesses daily. And so, um, you know, there were many more businesses that had needs than, you know, there were resources um, to give, et cetera. Atlanta has such a history of inclusive economics. Um, when we think about, you know, even the Maynard Jackson legacy and how that legacy helped to build um, inclusive economics for many small business owners, um, there's so many reasons that we felt, um, especially after seeing the success of EOCF in Chicago, um, in Detroit, and just knowing that there are a number of majority minority um, you know, uh, neighborhoods in Atlanta, we, we think about Grove Park, we think about English Avenue, um, you know, to the east, kind of the Thomasville Heights area, lots of, of areas that really um, are just ripe, have a need for increased resources. All of those things made Atlanta right um, for, for this investment and for this partnership. Well, and, and as someone who has these conversations every day, you're absolutely right. There is a disparity. There is a disproportionate in terms of when you talk about access. And you know, you mentioned all those neighborhoods and all those communities. Let's talk then about this announcement today. I mean, $3.2 million to support minority-owned small businesses in Atlanta. This Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, how will all this work? Dale? The Entrepreneurs of Color Fund has three important components. Um, One is it's going to help LISC and other partners in the community that are helping businesses get ready for investment. So as I mentioned before, people need help with their business plans, financials, marketing, all the uh, tools they need to pivot. And there is a nice network of folks. uh, These are other nonprofits and community organizations that are working in that space. There's money in this fund to help support those groups. Secondly, there's money to help guarantee loans and ease approval. So when a business is going up to a lender to ask for a loan, this fund can step in with some extra dollars and a guarantee um, to make that approval easier. And then thirdly, the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund can actually work with lenders to buy back their loans. almost like clearing your phone of voicemails to press clear and start all over again. There's money to help um, purchase loans from lenders so they can make more loans to future businesses. So let's make sure we're clear here. You all are helping folks that help the small business owners. That's right. So we are lenders, but we're also helping other nonprofits that help businesses uh, prepare for loans and uh, receive credit to be able to invest in their dollars, their businesses. Rashida, so it's tell- both, Rose. It's it's both. Yeah. It is, and and Dell clarified. So, funding goes directly to those that need it most, um, our small business owners. But um, but also, as Dale indicated, for LISC as a whole, they also help support, and 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 we do too at, at J.P. Morgan Chase, um, a list of of other organizations. But what he spoke to. Um, Definitely, is there's funding that's going directly to small businesses. And then, as he said, they also help support um, some of those that are also getting money out. Well, here come the emails. And obviously, this is very exciting for some folks, but they have questions. Here's one right now that says, okay, are you talking about established businesses or startups? Good question. Very good question, Dale. We're talking about established businesses, um, not startups. And this is so key because we're trying to help uh, reduce the racial wealth gap. We're trying to make sure that the businesses that are already out um, supporting families with the paychecks 
um, supporting enterprises are able to survive, pivot, and, and grow. How established is established? A year, two years, five? Do you have a criteria for this, or will it vary? It, it can vary uh, because we're working with partners. Typically, it's uh, two years, but we can be more flexible, um, and, and some of our partners can be even more flexible than that. I'm not going to go through all the emails, but here's another one. Do you have to, your business has to be inside of the city of Atlanta or any of the surrounding counties? It doesn't. Go ahead, Dale. I see you trying to jump in there. No limit. <laughs> um, we are focused on uh, the big five metro counties, uh, Fulton, DeKalb, Cobb, Clayton, and Gwinnett. Um, but, uh, and for at Lisk, mm-hmm. and then our lender partners can work in even other areas so so don't hold back if you got a good uh, all right Dale don't t- don't tell my listeners that because and that's a good thing though but in uh, of course the big question is how do folks find out more information get involved apply what do you want to tell folks that they should know ahead of time in order to even if they're going to be thinking about trying to get into this program or applying what do you want them to know Dale I'm Rashida should I say Dale <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're in it together, but I'll start. Um, start at the LISC website, uh, LISC, L-I-S-C dot org. Um, there's a small business resource page on that website, and, and uh, we can find out about referring you. And we have six partners that are part of this here in Atlanta, and we're growing that partnership, so there'll be more, and we can provide those names and resources. And Rashid, I want our listeners to be very clear, too, because when we talk about minority and, and, and small business owners, uh, you're talking about women, and you, t- you mentioned the Latinos and Hispanics and, and anyone who identifies in that, that, that category, correct? Yes, so, so definitely. Um, you know, for EOCF, our focus is Black, um, Latino, and Hispanic businesses. Um, but I would say, Rose, your question was, well, you said how, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I heard questions from your listeners that were almost kind of qualifying questions, which is extremely important. But one of the things I've seen working with um, a number of small businesses is sometimes we work to disqualify ourselves, right? And I just want to say to the listeners, don't do that. So there are definitely qualifications, but if you reach out, it's up to us, right, to say, hey, this program is not the program. However, in many instances, especially on the list, on the list side, on the JP Morgan Chase side, we have so many other opportunities. Do not count yourself out. We want to hear from you. This is an opportunity that, you know, is important to us. Um, our partners at LISC, we have the same goals, which is to work to get more resources, more capital into Atlanta communities. So don't count yourself out. All right. Good words to end on. Thank you so much for that. Rashida Winfrey, Minority Small Business Consultant with J.P. Morgan Chase. Dale Rural, Executive Director with Local Initiative Support Corporation, better known as LISC, L-I-S-C. Big announcement from J.P. Morgan Chase today. Thank you all so much. I want you all to come back. Let us know who you're helping and maybe bring some of those small business owners. We'd love to talk to them. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know those municipal elections will take place November 2nd, and that includes the Atlanta mayoral race. Now, just over a 1,000 miles up north, way up north, the same for Boston. In fact, it'll be a historic victory for one of the two candidates. You'll hear more about them in just a moment. Why? Well, Bostonians will elect the city's first mayor of color. Philip Martin is a senior investigative reporter for the GBH News Center in Boston. That's an NPR affiliate. He joins me now to talk about his latest feature, which chronicles why black Bostonians 
have left the city and now call Atlanta home. Philip, welcome to the program. Hey, Rose, thank you very much. Um, and I'm just, you know, looking at you on Zoom and, you know, that hip hat, you know, <laughs> and that incredible background. You know, I, I can see that Boston already has serious competition, even in public radio. I Come mean, on it's now. unbelievable. Come on now. We didn't even mention that your Red Sox didn't make the World Series, but that's okay because I'm brave. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even go there. <laughs> that's just wrong. Chase, <laughs> I have no sympathy. Y'all beat my Cardinals some years back. I have no sympathy for the Red Sox. That's right. Not just beat them. Shellac. <laughs> okay, Philip. <laughs> this interview is over. You know we're gonna get to All your right. we're gonna get to your piece in just a moment, but I want to set this up for our closer look listeners because there's a backstory at the core of this feature here. Tell us about it. Well, the backstory is Boston has always, for a long time, we're talking about several decades, had a reputation for racism. I mean, it's obviously has a reputation for Cheers. It has a reputation for Mark Wahlberg. It has a reputation. Uh, for uh, for Aerosmith, but sadly, uh, Boston, because of the extraordinary violent backlash to school desegregation in the 1970s, mm-hmm. a backlash exemplified by a black man being speared with an American flag, which has stayed in the American mind for decades, that is still the image for many people, particularly black people, of Boston. And it's also uh, a reason why some Bostonians, quite a few in fact, over the last um, three decades, four decades, have fled to uh, a number of places, principally Atlanta. And, you know, I think uh, listeners may, many listeners may also recall that during the, there was with busing and desegregation within the Boston Public Schools, there were some pretty violent, violent acts there. That still remains with a lot of folks as well, Philip. Well, that's true. And a lot of this was, uh, was brought about because of the the makeup of neighborhoods. Uh, These were essentially bastions. Um, You didn't have a formal border, but you had borders. The demarcation between South Boston, for example, uh, and uh, places like like Dorchester was pretty stark Mm -hmm. uh, because they were racial borders. Uh, You were basically told that you don't go there. And a lot of people uh, uh, believed on both sides of those borders, but particularly in places like South Boston, uh, that this is our neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, it, and they protected it fiercely and that uh, came down to violence it was racially uh, demarcated uh, it was uh, it was violent and it didn't wasn't just the school's roles uh, this uh, seeped into the nightlife um, and into other aspects of uh, of society in Boston and so on the heels of what will be an historic election result, whatever it will be, for our listeners, uh, tell me about these two candidates, these two final candidates. Well, you have a unprecedented uh, race. Uh, in fact, the entire year has been unprecedented. We have an acting mayor now. Her name is Kim Janey. She's black and African-American, the first mayor uh, in, uh, of color in Boston's history. Uh, which has been marked largely, uh, which has been marked exclusively by white males. Kim Janey, it was thought, would be in the final. Mm-hmm. Uh, in but in the primary, she was uh, defeated along with two other black candidates. Remaining are two formidable, uh, experienced uh, former city council people uh, who are competing now to become the mayor of Boston. One is an Asian American, a Michelle Wu. The other is an Arab American. Uh, uh, um, Anissa Asabi George, and they are um, uh, they. Uh, one of them, of course, will become the new mayor of Boston. First time a non-white male mm-hmm. uh, has uh, will become the mayor of Boston. So, what prompted you then to look at? Hey, folks, black Bostonians have been moving to Atlanta. Well, as you know, Rose. Uh, uh, We've had a migration for years. Isabel Wilkerson wrote about mm-hmm. um, the great migration and the warmth of other sons. Uh, her uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning National Book Award uh, winning book about migration. That was uh, folks like uh, my folks who went from Georgia, uh, for example, southern Georgia to Detroit. Um, cousins uh, who uh, are southern in everything but location and geography, mm-hmm. uh, uh, f- families uh, in Chicago, so on and so forth. Uh, and people moved because of extraordinary racism in the South. 
Rose, the same thing uh, uh, can be said in many ways about Boston. You had a sort of a reverse migration mm -hmm. where people after the 1970s and during the 1970s uh, started moving southward. Uh, the beneficiaries of their movement, because many of these people were and are uh, uh, decidedly in middle class, college educated, uh, but the principal beneficiary has been Atlanta. Uh, and it's true for the Northeast in general, with over a million people in the ball, in the Atlanta area uh, having come from the Northeast of, of uh, in within recent decades. And so you came to Atlanta. We're going to take a listen now, and then we'll come back and mm -hmm. talk about it. This is Philip Martin. Kyle Wells has lived in several cities, but he calls Atlanta home. He grew up in the Mattapan section of Boston along Morton and Blue Hill Avenue, and by the end of high school was itching to go elsewhere. I remember distinctly for my kind of high school goal was to move out of Boston. Wells headed southward to attend college in the 1990s. Today at age 49, he works as a senior creative writer for a major sports network here in Atlanta. We speak in his expansive front yard on the city's southwest side, where a huge magnolia tree shades his house from the hot Georgia sun. Wells stays in touch with friends in Boston and has been watching the mayoral race from a distance. He says he was disappointed when neither of his preferred candidates, Kim Janey or Andrea Campbell, advanced. The fact that neither of the black candidates made it through, I'm not surprised. For blacks, there is still a, a perception. We're, we're minorities, but we aren't the, the ideal ones. And this former Bostonian seems unimpressed that one of two non-white female candidates is poised to take over the reins of city government. And so to the question, with Boston on the verge of electing its first mayor of color, how do former black Bostonians here feel about the city they left behind? There is no comparison. 49-year-old Chantrice Sims Holloman has lived in Atlanta longer than she lived in the Boston area, which she left in the mid-90s. Sims Holloman grew up in West Newton and says it was there that she was first called the N-word. In Boston itself, she learned to stay out of certain neighborhoods, she said, because of the color of her skin. An author and educator with a doctorate degree, Holloman found professional opportunities in Boston to be far and few between. My mother very much wanted me to move back home, and I told my mother that it's important to me that my daughter grow up in a city where people look like her and are successful. My parents are still the only black family within three or four miles of where they live. Here in Atlanta, there is black excellence on just about every corner. Logan Gaskill agrees, yet he is also encouraged by Boston's mayoral race. That's progress. Like a lot of black professionals in Atlanta, Gaskill came here from the Boston area to attend Morehouse or Spelman. His father taught at Hyde Park High School during the height of desegregation. And Gasco says he has watched over and over again video clippings of racial violence that erupted at the school in 1974. <laughs> Yet, says Gasco, he is still put off by people who seem to view Boston only through the prism of that period. I moved to Atlanta for college, and I met a guy from Alabama or Mississippi, and he said, where are you from? I said, I grew up in Boston. He said, oh my God, it's racist there. And I just remember thinking like, dude, you're from Alabama or Mississippi. Like, it doesn't get more racist than that. But Gaskell says that perception is reality for many black people in America and that whoever becomes mayor of Boston will be tasked with updating that image. Atlanta native B. Maynard Scarborough worked for the city of Boston and the Globe and famously carved out a space for black and Latino people in the city's segregated nightlife by working with club owners and restaurateurs. We did those things because we had to. We didn't have anything to do. So we were a natural group that needed just a little organizing. Scarborough's enterprise was called The Loop. Most observers viewed it as a model of success for providing access to the city's often closed off institutions of culture and nightlife. Yet Scarborough moved back to Atlanta in 2005 for reasons that he says are fundamental to the notion of basic freedom. Atlanta is almost like we, we feel like we don't have to ask to do. You, you feel empowered. It's our town. I never felt, even though I was there for 20 years, I never felt like Boston was my town at all. And I love Boston. George Chip Greenwich grew up in Boston's Mission Hill in Cambridge and has straddled the Mason-Dixon line via Delta Airlines for more than three decades. We're talking inside a cafe in Boston's Nubian Square, 
Greenwich also loves Boston, but says his heart is in Atlanta. I was very interested in being in both of those spaces and places. In Atlanta, there are more opportunities for people to actually become an entrepreneur. There are more ways for creatives to be creative because there are more spaces to do so. And also there's a cheaper rent district and arts district. Here it's very impossible for a young person that's not in school to actually make it. Greenwich created and runs a nonprofit called Greatest Minds, tasked with building the next generation of black leaders in Boston, which achieved majority minority status in the 2000s. Greenwich left Boston in the 1990s to attend Morehouse, but has lived in both Boston and Atlanta since then and is now pursuing a PhD at Georgia State. Greenwich recently hosted a live debate in Dorchester with Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi George. These two candidates are younger, but I think there's some older structures that have to be addressed. Both have to make sure that there are resources on the table for people looking at the quality of life issues, why they should stay here and be around here. Back in Atlanta, we asked black residents if they would consider returning to Boston permanently in light of its changing political leadership. No. <laughs> I don't even have to think about that. Chantrice Sims-Holloman cites the seemingly interminable racial battles over Boston exam school admissions as an example why. I've gotten used to my daughter uh, graduating from a math science magnet school. There, there's just a difference where there's certain battles you don't have to fight. Logan Gaskill is also not planning to return to live in Boston anytime soon despite what he sees as political progress with this year's mayoral race. He's concerned about those who've fallen through the cracks of Boston society. I would like to believe it's gotten better, but I mean, I think about this story that the Boston Globe did about why do people think Boston's racing? They did more stats to kind of show like wealth gaps and jobs. And I don't know that Boston has done anything to dispel that. Those interviewed agree that Atlanta is far from a paradise for black people with its high poverty and crime rates, class divide, and blue political status in an ocean of deep red conservatism. They also acknowledge that racism is omnipresent in the U.S. But here, these former Bostonians feel more cushioned from racism's impact. Boston's mayoral race is unlikely to change that perception. In Atlanta, Philip Martin. GBH Boston's local NPR. And Philip Martin remains with me. Philip, first of all, get a piece there. You know, it's very interesting when you talk about those Thanks, continuing Rose. continuing racial battles. Is the election of, of this mayor, which will be historic, for some they said, yeah, that's progress, but it's not enough. And I'm, I'm curious in terms of your the demographics of the of Boston's electorate in, in general. Is it changing? Or what, what, what are the demographic shifts you're seeing over these last few years? Well, Rose, I, I, first of all, and I, and I think your show is appropriately called A Closer Look. I think we have to take a closer look at what Boston uh, has become over the, uh, the, the past uh, five decades. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not the Boston of 1974. Uh, but structural racism is something that is uh, that seems almost immutable uh, in in Boston. Uh, and so what you have is a population that is largely uh, people of color, mm -hmm. one of the largest immigrant populations in the country, but many of these people now citizens. Uh, but we're talking about Haitians. We're talking about large Dominican population, Puerto Ricans, large African-American population, people born here, but their parents, many of their, most of their parents are from the South. Uh, though you also have um, some born in this area uh, over many generations. Cape Verdean, people from Cape Verde, mm -hmm. a large uh, population of Cape Verdeans. Uh, so what you essentially have is a very, uh, and a growing Asian population, by the way, uh, both Chinese American, Cambodian, Laotian. Uh, and we have um, uh, individuals who will represent all of these constituencies. Michelle Wu is regarded as very progressive. Mm -hmm. She's leading in the polls substantially uh, based on the last two major polls taken in the city. Uh, Anissa Asabi George, uh, 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 Polish, I'm sorry, uh, who is a part Polish uh, and uh, Arab American and considers herself a person of color. Uh, she is uh, doing, uh, she's trying to catch up, viewed as far more conservative than M Michelle Wu. But the city is gearing, is sort of leaning uh, more and more liberal, more and more progressive, mm -hmm. but particularly after the uh, last four years of, uh, of Donald Trump, 
the city has become more and more entrenched in its liberalism. What is the structure here in Atlanta, in the Atlanta city government, the mayor, for lack of better words, has the, the, the power in a sense. What is that structure in Boston city government? And does that get that lend in helping to, I guess, fix some of those racial barriers that and you said, is you know, Boston's, Boston's been changed for the last 50 years. But is the city government, is that the key then, Philip? Has that changes in, in this new era, whatever that's going to be? Well, leadership is always important. And who uh, the last mayor, Marty Walsh, was regarded uh, as a very good mayor, regarded as a progressive mayor, but, but who did not go far enough in the view of many. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's now, of course, our labor secretary under, under Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. And what you have uh, with um, Michelle Wu is someone basically who is, if you lack of a better word, is a visionary. Mm-hmm. She does, in fact, realize, as both candidates realize, that they raised the lingering image of Boston. A lot of it st- stuck in the 70s and 80s uh, is problematic in terms of drawing talent, black talent, Latino talent, talent, uh, Asian-American talent to Boston. How diverse is the structure of, 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 of Boston city government? Has it been? It- it- In recent years, certainly since 2016, actually before 2012, you've had a number of African-Americans on the city council. Think about that. Contrast that with the the city council of um, the 70s and 80s, where you had members who were openly making ape-like sounds Mm -hmm. uh, and goading Black people who who belonged to groups like the South Boston Marshals, uh, which was a reactionary conservative group uh, akin to the Oath Keepers of today mm-hmm. uh, or the Proud Boys. Uh, these were the, this was part of our, the city's leadership, 1970s and 80s. Uh, and so in Michelle Wu, again, was a member of the council, as was Asabi uh, George. Uh, and now the notion of a black mayor uh, and mayor, mayors in Boston are fairly powerful compared to many across the, um, mm-hmm. across the country. They have a lot of executive power uh, they can, in fact, make uh, decisions. Uh, uh, those decisions have to be, uh, for the most part, uh, affirmed by the city council, but not always. Uh, the mayor here is largely in, in charge of the schools. Uh, really? Appointing, yeah, appointing school uh, uh, school committee members uh, as opposed to electing them, uh, which uh, that went out some time ago. It's the, the process now is that they uh, these uh, people are appointed. And so that has everything to do, by the way, with what um, uh, Dr. Holloman said in Mm -hmm. the piece when she talked about exam schools. We have a major controversy here over the admission of black students to Boston Latin, which is our premier uh, high school and the oldest uh, high school in the country, of course. Uh, And 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 but you have relatively few uh, black students who get into Boston Latin because of the uh, the system of testing, um, where uh, again, it's based on a, it's the assumption that tests uh, ascertain mm-hmm. how smart you are, as opposed to grades. For example, oh, we know this. Oh, Philip, we could have a whole another segment on that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Wow, the pieces. And, um, and, yeah, and, and 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 many of those clamoring to retain the system of testing are um, are Asian Americans and white parents. Uh, which puts Michelle Wu in a position of trying to navigate uh, these this this conflict between uh, Black Bostonians, of of Asians and whites, who often come together over many other issues. But yeah. this is a contentious issue. The piece is called "Black Bostonians Fled to Atlanta to Escape Racism." They're not coming back, no matter who's elected mayor. Philip Martin is a senior investigative reporter for the GBH News Center in Boston, our NPR affiliate. Good conversation, Philip. Got to bring you back. Lots to talk about. Thank you, Rose. Much appreciated. We have to talk about your braves. Of course. (laughs) Thank you so much, Philip. Take care now. Thank you. Take care. That is our Atlanta Braves and the World Series theme music. <laughs> that is Guitar Gabby and the Tulips Band. Of course, 
They've been a featured artist on our summer indie music series. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. feel like I'm back in my old sports talk radio days, but that's okay. And in case you don't know, the Braves are in the World Series. 1-2 pitch on the way. Driven to right field. Out there towards the corner. That is a fair ball home run. A three-run homer by Eddie Rosario. Eddie, you are the man. Games one and two will be in Houston, and the Braves are back home for, in Truist Park. Joining me now with more is WABE's Emil Moffitt. He's been covering the Braves in the postseason. Emil, welcome. Hey, Rose, good to talk to you. Now, folks don't know this. There's a rule in the press box. You know, you journalists, we don't we don't clap, you know, but you're sitting there going. No cheering in the press no box. No cheering That's in the right. press box. Inside, you're going, yes, I'm going to get credentials to the World Series. <laughs> How cool was the other night, Emil? It was, uh, it was quite the scene. And really, all the playoff games this year at Truist Park have just been uh, an electric atmosphere. Um, and it's playoff baseball, which is just a great experience for the fans because they're into it from the first pitch. And every time there are two strikes on an opposing hitter, the fans stand up and cheer um, and just so much excitement. And, and of course the Braves have responded playing so well at home, uh, clinching the national league pennant the other night here at home. Um, so it, it, it's just a, a fantastic atmosphere and I expect it to be even crazier and even louder in the World Series, if that's possible. Absolutely. Now, you were uh, at Truist Park early this afternoon. You still working, Emil? Did you take a break? <laughs> Just a little bit of a break. I'll grab some lunch soon. But, um, but yeah, exciting scene out there as the, the Braves uh, were kind of sent off by some fans as they uh, board the bus, go to the airport, and take the plane to Houston. Let's take a listen. There were definitely a lot of doubts this season, but you just got to keep pushing through. Watching them not be able to get over 500 for half the time is not very fun. So, But they did it, and we're here, so that's all that matters. It's almost it's a surreal feeling. I, I'm so excited for them, for the team, for the city. I think the city deserves this. Let's go Brave. Let's go Brave. I think we'll win it in five. Ooh, win it in five. Uh, not according to Caesar Sportsbook, but what do they know? <laughs> uh, Emil, let's talk about this series for, for our, our, our listeners here. You know, back in, I think it was June, and there were a lot of people, and I even think our good buddy over at the AJC, Greg Bluestein, did he tweet, I'm done with this team? I believe he did. <laughs> and so, Greg, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people were done with the team, not only in June, but in July and into early August. They didn't have a winning record until – their early August didn't move into first place in the East until mid-August. Uh, and so it's a team that really remade itself because of some injuries and then have been playing their best baseball. But that's kind of the thing in baseball. It doesn't matter who the best team is in the playoffs. It's who's playing the best in late September and in October. Well, speaking of who's playing the best, how about Eddie Rosario? Man, listen, and Freddie Freeman, we know what we get with him. But, you know, there was a lot of talk about why the Braves, you know, making these moves. But obviously – Hey, look, it, 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 it panned out. It was excellent. Braves management did an awesome job of getting these guys on the team. Now, of course, we could talk about how they're going to keep them all because you got to give folks a raise. But for now, let's look at this series with Houston. Who's got the better pitching? Who's got the better offense? I'm going to ask you to play, play analyst, Emil. Well, it's interesting that, you know, the Braves have, have, have relied on strong starting pitching um, for, for uh, the last half of this season. Um, with their ace Max Freed and with Charlie Morton, who'll start Game One, and with Ian Anderson, they've they've been really strong in the in in the starting pitching category. But that hasn't really been the key to this postseason mm-hmm. across the board in baseball. You don't see starters going into the sixth, seventh, eighth innings in this postseason. They've been going four or five, and then they're done, and they turn it over to the bullpen. And that's where the Braves have really. Uh, you know, uh, come on strong with three of their left-handed relievers, including their closer, Will Smith, who's been surprisingly stable uh, in the playoffs. He usually makes it interesting, but he's been rock solid there closing out games in the in the ninth. And so the I think the bullpens are going to be the key uh, pitching-wise. And then the way that the guys like Eddie Rosario and, and Freddie Freeman and Jock Peterson are swinging the bats for the Braves, I think that really gives them a lot of momentum going into the series. I had a good friend, a mentor, Ken Hudson, told me one time, and he was talking about basketball. He said, sometimes when you get into the championship series, coaches can mess it up because they overthink too much. We're talking about Brian Snicker here in terms of the manager. You want to manage the game. You don't want to overthink this. You just go with what's gotten you here thus far. But he's done an amazing job. 
He has, and he has such a great story. He's not a kind of a household name. He played a little bit um, and then and then has been a career minor league manager, was min- was managing in the Braves minor league system for 20 years until they named him the, the, the manager of the big league team in 2016. And he's really brought a lot of stability uh, to this team in his tenure as the manager. And a lot of the guys knew him uh, when they were coming up through the minor league system. And in the contrast, you see a lot of big league managers these days that are hired just out after they stop playing. And so they don't have very much managerial experience. But Brian Snitker has just been to thousands and thousands of games through hundreds and hundreds of knowing how to manage players and personalities in the clubhouse. And so he's really got a good handle. And I, I don't think we'll see him overthink or get nervous in this in this series. Do you pay attention to what the folks out in Vegas do? Well, I guess you kind of have to a lot more these days. You know, it was fun in the yeah because they got their hooks and everything. That's why exactly in the eighties and nineties and in two thousands, baseball was just staying so far away from gambling in Las Vegas. But now it's starting to come back into it with with legalized sports betting in a number of states. Not in Georgia yet. They're working on it, but not in Georgia yet. But you see it so pervasive now that you almost have to start paying a, a lot of attention to it. Um, just from a, a kind of an interesting um, you know, fan perspective um, uh, to see, you know, how things will turn out and what the odds are. And just it's I think it's kind of fun to, to look at and see, uh, you know, what the what the quote unquote experts are saying. From a fan fun perspective, Emil, <laughs> if you <laughs> I guess. if you had the Braves back in June going to the World Series, they were I think the odds were 45 to one. Got a payday coming up. <laughs> Well, listen, uh, let's talk tickets. You got some tickets for me? Now, I was on StubHub earlier today, and I was talking to our WABE, uh, Alex Moffitt, and we saw tickets, (laughs) $20,000 per ticket, just behind it, dugout. I don't have $20,000. I don't know if you got it, but um, (laughs) it's going to be insane trying to get tickets. Yeah, it's and it's really, you know, you talk about the difference between uh, you know, back in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when you could get an affordable ticket to the World Series, when games, you know, started at a reasonable hour, it's not really made for, uh, you know, the common common everyday fan, uh, either on TV or on in person, uh, so that you hope that, that's, you know, a lot of Braves fans get the chance to um, at least go see a game or two of the World Series sure. because it is kind of a you never know when it's a once in a lifetime deal. Absolutely. So perhaps people will think of it as that uh, when they when they're shelling out these big bucks. Twenty thousand dollars for a ticket. Wow. Emil, you heard one of the fans said they thought the Braves in in five. Um, I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction, but I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Uh <laughs> What do you think, buddy? Well, it's been it's been interesting that the none the first two series have not gone the distance. Braves won the first one in four, and then won over the Dodgers in six. So I don't think this one will go the distance either. But I say I say Braves in six. Is this a matchup for Major League Baseball and the networks? You know, sometimes people ah they look at the markets. They're like, yeah. I mean, listen, we all know that if Boston is in it, or the Yankees, or the Dodgers, blah 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 blah. But you know, we're talking about Atlanta and Houston. Those pretty good markets, so yeah, top ten, yeah, top ten, both markets and um, really good fan bases, regional fan bases that have these, these two teams have long histories in their particular cities and in their regions, and that's the thing you mentioned the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers and and how the networks kind of want those, but often those series don't turn into the best series mm-hmm. to watch just from an entertainment perspective, and so I, I think these two teams match up well, and I think it should be an entertaining series. Well, like everything else in this nation, politics entered into this. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp took a little jab at Major League Baseball with a little tweet. What do you say? <laughs> he he basically referred back to the the All Star Game, which of course was originally scheduled to be here in July and was moved to Denver um, after the, uh, the 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 Georgia legislature passed um, the the voting the new voting uh, legislation. And so, you know, he basically, you know, again, took a, a shot at Stacey Abrams, even though she never publicly came out and said the, the All-Star game should be moved. At all. But really lumped, yeah, lumped uh, both her and MLB together and saying kind of you can't, you know, you know, you can't stop the, the World Series now from being played in Atlanta. So 
Um, he kind of interjected some politics there, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if if Governor Kemp shows up. I know he's a big Braves fan, but if he actually shows up to, to see a game and what the reception might be for him. All right. Well, it is the Atlanta Braves and the Houston Astros. And uh, Emil, I know you're going to have a lot of fun covering. You you are going to get a media credential, right? They didn't. I'll be there. <laughs> Let me know if I have to call somebody in the in office. <laughs> so far, they haven't taken it away from me. So. <laughs> WABE's Emil Moffat. He will be covering the World Series. Emil, thank you so much. Philip Martin is still hanging on from the GBH. He's, he's giving you an applause there, but he's just jealous because his little raggedy Red Sox didn't get in. <laughs> <laughs> right, enjoyed it, Rose. Thanks. Take care now. Uh, just kidding, Boston. Still don't like y'all, but just kidding. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it will be free. Always. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 